This is the Bible Line, a live radio call-in program with Dr. Carl Brogy. Dr. Brogy is the senior pastor of Community Bible Church of Beaufort, South Carolina. And for the next hour, he's available to answer your questions, providing biblical insight and wisdom for everyday Christian living. Our phone lines are open, and if you have a question, you may call 525-1859 locally or outside the immediate area, call toll-free 877-924-7980. Now let's join Dr. Carl Brogy. Study and show yourself approved of God as a workman who is not ashamed, accurately handling the word of truth. Uh, We welcome you to this month in September as we once again have the Bible line. If you are a very first-time listener, for the next hour, we take people's questions that they may have as they're studying God's Word. Maybe it's a particular challenge uh, that they're facing and they want biblical counsel or they're trying to understand a text in terms of its meaning or application. And so if we can be of help, by God's grace, we will. Again, those numbers locally, the 843 South Carolina Exchange is simply 525-1859, or you can call us toll-free if it's easier for you to remember. The 877 toll-free number is the call letters, WAGP 980. Uh, you can text us here directly into the studio. And that is done by uh, TBL. The, uh, I say text, email, TBL for the Bible line, tbl at wagp.net. We get a ton of questions that way as well. We do give preference to live callers. So if you've got a burning issue and you want to go on the air live, uh, we're happy to respond. Uh, You don't have to give your name or anything. You can remain anonymous, though your friends will probably know your voice. Uh, But in either case, we'll we'll do our best to help and respond. So let's go ahead and we'll get started this morning. All right. Gary from Walterboro wants to know, when Adam and Eve sinned and God made them uh, clothes of animal skins, was this God making a sacrifice for them for their forgiveness? To me, the Genesis 3 account does not say they repented and were forgiven. Did they have a relationship with God after the fall because they taught Cain and Abel to sacrifice? They were not referred to as righteous in Scripture as other people were, so were Adam and Eve saved? Well, it's it's a good question, Uh, and it's not an easy answer in that I can give it to you in 30 seconds, but let me see if I can respond to it. Obviously, there's not a single verse in Scripture that quote-unquote, calls Adam and Eve, you know, saved people. But there's a lot of people who are not deemed saved or righteous or born again and under New Covenant theology that we know from the biblical evidence that they are true believers. So the question becomes, is there any biblical evidence to show that Adam and Eve really knew the Lord? And I would say yes. I would say that you'll meet Adam and Eve in heaven really for for several reasons. First, initially, would be their own response to sin. If you remember when God created them, I've turned here to Genesis 1, uh, they are described as naked and unashamed. So these are two people who are made in God's image. They're free from sin. Uh, They are naked and unashamed. And yet after they sin... When you come a little bit later into the dialogue, you discover things change rapidly. Uh, God says uh, the eyes of both of them were opened, and then they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves 
loin covering. So that's very different from Genesis 2.25 where they're naked and unashamed. Now they're ashamed. They're aware of their nakedness. And through the work of their own hands, they try to uh, cover their shame. And then God comes into the garden. He says, where are you? Uh, God obviously is omniscient. He knows everything. He never asks questions in which to learn. But he is uh, asking a question to reveal to Adam and Eve that there's a problem. And they really, um, in their dialogue with God, though they want to blame other people, still they recognize there is a problem. And by the way, that's the first step to becoming a Christian. You have to get a person lost before you can get them saved. So I think, A, they knew they were lost. That's why they fled. That's why they hid. Uh, Second, uh, God had taught Adam and Eve of the need for a substitute. And so both by precept and by example, God had taught really the need for a Savior to be able to, uh, for them to find forgiveness. I'm turning over the next page here to Genesis 3 in verse 21. It says, and you reference this in your question, uh, the Lord made garments of skin, so it's plural, uh, so he killed more than one animal. God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. So he removes the fig leaf, so to speak, and God clothes them with clothes. Did, did God physically dress them? I, I think he gave it to them and they, they put them on. And even that step was an acknowledgement that God had a different plan. By the way, this is the very first death in all the universe. Uh, death did immediately come in the spiritual sense. They died that day on the inside. It immediately came on the outside in that they began to age physically. And so in one sense, we're born dying. And of course, the third kind of death not mentioned here, but the question that you have asked deals with it and it's eternal death. So there's spiritual, physical, eternal. But this was an actual physical death. Uh, You know, there are so-called Christian uh, evolutionists who affirm what they teach as theistic evolution Um, and it's really gross heresy. It's wrong. It goes against all of Scripture, and among other things, it puts death before the fall. But God is clear. The very first death happens after the fall when God kills these animals, and so he gives them coats of skin. And and so God is teaching them a lesson, and, and he will not only teach them by you know, direct example of their need for a substitute because the wages of sin is death, and so only death is going to satisfy the justice of God. And so God, through an animal sacrifice, provides a substitute. But God will then directly preach the gospel to him. Um, actually, he did, and then he illustrates it. He says in Genesis 3.15, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your descendant and your offspring and her descendant, her offspring. So God mentions here two seeds, the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. He's, uh, you know, dealing with Satan head on. And, of course, the seed of the woman refers to a person, and the seed of the serpent must also equally refer to a person. So let's talk about the seed of the serpent for just a moment. Is Satan going to have a baby? Is he going to have a child? And if so, what's his name? Well, I suppose in the broadest sense, you could say that uh, Satan has children, Uh, Jesus said to the Pharisees, who were very religious people but who were lost, you are of your father the devil, and you want to do the desires of your father. So in the broadest sense, 
because we have all uh, sinned in and with Adam, we're downstream of Adam. Without conversion, we're still children of the devil. Though I think you can argue in a specific sense, as God you know, unfolds his revelation through the rest of the Bible, that Satan will have a capstone seed amongst the human race, and he is called the man of sin. He's called the man of lawlessness. Uh, most of us know, us know him by his more popular name, the Antichrist, and he'll be Satan's counterfeit. I, I don't think you can say that he's, quote-unquote, Satan in the flesh, but he's certainly inhabited by the evil one directly. There are people who are demon-possessed, and then there are people who, at least one other that we know who is literally inhabited by the devil himself, and that was Judas. The devil entered into Judas. And by the way, there's only one other person who is called a son of lawlessness other than the Antichrist, and that's Judas himself. So they're both given that term. So I suppose he is a son of Satan, this coming Antichrist, who will try to uh, mimic the Lord Jesus and try to replace him. So there's the seed of Satan, but then he mentions here the seed of the woman. Um, There's over 100 places in the Old Testament, if I remember, where the seed, sometimes it's translated offspring, but more literally seed, uh, it's referring to the seed of a man. The, the egg is in the woman. The seed is in the man. It's the man who provides the seed, so to speak, for procreation. So why would God refer to her seed as the seed of the woman? And The rabbis would scratch their heads through this, and they weren't really sure at first, but progressively God unfolded more and more and more of his revelation. God was going to provide the seed in the woman, through a supernatural conception. And so it would rightly not be called the seed of the man because God's going to provide it. And, of course, in Isaiah seven fourteen, he tells them that a virgin is going to conceive. A virgin without a male is going to conceive and bear a son. Why? Because God is going to provide the seed. So I say all that to say that both by uh, direct precept, we call it the proto-evangelium, that's Latin for the first gospel. The first time the gospel really appears directly is in Genesis 3.15. I have a whole message just on that, really unfolding it carefully. But then God goes on, and he shows them by example of their need for a blood sacrifice. So, one, Adam and Eve knew they were sinners. Two, God gave a direct command for the need of a Savior and then illustrated why we needed a Savior because of the consequences for sin is death. And obviously, animal blood could never remove sin, and it was just symbolic of what God was going to do. But third, and I think um, you kind of uh, uh, refer to this, at least partly, that Adam in some sense confessed uh, this need to his sons. You say, well, how do you know that? Well, when you come to Genesis chapter 4, Let me turn over there. It says, um, so it came about in the course of time that Cain brought an offering to the Lord of the fruit of the ground. Abel, on his part, also brought of the firstlings of the flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and for his offspring, but for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. So the Lord had already instructed Cain and Abel, no doubt through the example of Adam, who worshipped in a proper way, he worshipped with blood sacrifices. Well, these boys come of age. They're old enough now to kill an animal. You don't ask an eight-year-old to do that. And they had, by example, 
learned a critical principle that without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. And of course, Abel confessed that unlike Cain. Abel recognized the need for a blood sacrifice. Now, people, especially through some liberal theology that came in the 19th century out of Germany, say, well, this is not really teaching a blood sacrifice. This is dealing with the quality of the sacrifice that, you know, um, uh, one brought the better than the other or the origin of the sacrifice. Some liberals say one came from the ground. Look, the ground was cursed. The animals was cursed. All of creation was cursed. And God is very clear that this is an issue of blood atonement. And, of course, the writer of the Hebrews gives us some divine commentary on this. So let me just turn there for a second. In Hebrews chapter 11, we call the 11th chapter of Hebrews sometimes the hall of fame of faith. In Hebrews eleven four, by faith, Abel offered to God a better sacrifice than Cain, though which he obtained the testimony that he was righteous, God testifying about his gifts. And through faith, though he is dead, he still speaks. So Abel is affirmed as righteous, Cain is not. And of course, the reason being is because he came by faith, he offered a better sacrifice. On what grounds? He came on the basis of blood, what God had already taught. Now remember, he came by faith. Faith comes from hearing, hearing by the word of God. So faith is always based on what God has revealed. God hasn't revealed anything except the simple truth that without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness of sin. And so if you take the account at face value, then you understand that Abel came on what God had revealed. Not to mention in Acts chapter 10, verse 43, when Peter is preaching to Cornelius in his household, he makes a statement about prophets that's very, very significant of him, uh, of Jesus, all the prophets bear witness that through his name, everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins. I think sometimes we diminish how much the prophets really understood. Now, certainly they didn't have the full revelation of God that we have, but still they understood a lot more than we give them credit. Even Abraham, Jesus could say, and Abraham, by the way, was a prophet as well. He's deemed a prophet. Uh, Abraham saw my day. He saw Christ's day. How did he see it? God gave him a dress rehearsal up there on top of Mount Moriah, the same mountain where the Lord Jesus would be crucified. So all the prophets bear witness that through Jesus, forgiveness of sin is found. You say, what does that have to do with Abel? Abel's a prophet. How do we know that? Because in that uh, sermon that, you know, he gives to the Pharisees, in Matthew 23, and he goes through this series of woes, uh, he gives some really chilling information about uh, these Pharisees and their condemnation. And he says here in Matthew uh, 23, uh, verse 33, he says, you serpents, you brood of vipers, how will you escape the sentence of hell? Therefore, behold, I am sending you prophets and wise men and scribes, Some of them you will kill and crucify, and some of them you will scourge in your synagogues and persecute from city to city, so that upon you may fall the guilt of all the righteous blood shed on earth, from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah. And of course, when you look in the parallel account, and again, the best interpreter of Scripture is Scripture itself. So one, there's an affirmation 
that from the blood of Abel all the way to the blood of Zechariah, and they're described as righteous men. And in the parallel account, if you go to Luke's gospel, and let me just turn over there very fast, Luke 11, in verse um, 51, he, he speaks of the fact that, so the blood of all the prophets shed, since the foundation of the world may be charged against this generation from the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah. So we learn a very significant truth that Abel is a prophet of God. And if he's a prophet of God, then all the prophets understood about the coming of Messiah. Where did Abel learn this? From his dad. So his dad had given a confession of faith of the need to uh, offer an animal sacrifice, and one believed it, the other did not. And I think you could also add that Adam was saved not only because he knew he was a sinner, which is critical, not only did he have the gospel preached to him, not only did he have an example of the need for a blood atonement in that God removed the um, fig leaves and gave them coats of skin, uh, not only did he confess his faith and so that Abel followed his example when sadly Cain did not, and Cain is of the evil one, but in addition, Paul uses Adam's name in a very uh positive way, like Jesus, in reference to marriage. And so of the need of a man to leave his father and mother, they're, they're referring to Adam and not some pagan. And then Luke, in the genealogy of Christ, refers to him as the son of God. I don't think he would refer to him as the son of God if he were still a son of the devil. Uh, and then you can also look at the analogy. It's found in Romans 5, 1 Corinthians 15, of Christ uh, being compared to Adam, and of course, Christ is the last Adam, and I I don't think that God would use Adam's name for Jesus if he were a man that was bound for hell. So, there's not a verse that says Adam was saved and is in heaven, just like there are scores of other people that we know were believers, but they're not necessarily deemed righteous, they're not necessarily uh, termed saved but they're going to heaven. Just like Lot, you know, you wouldn't think Lot was a saved man. Uh, you might assume he was lost, but he's called a righteous man. So sometimes God will surprise you. Great question. Let's go to the next one. All right, we've got a live caller standing by. Alberto from Savannah is on the line. Thanks for holding. Good morning. You're on the Bible line. Well, good morning, Dr. Cole Rory and Rick Forstner. I know you, uh, Dr. Cole Rory, you talked about the Antichrist in the past saying that he's going to be a Jewish man. So I, that's my my opinion. I think the devil's always always got to copy, you know, God and his thing. So I think that you think the maybe the Antichrist can be born in a little town of Bethlehem or maybe the, the town where the Caiaphas was born or I heard other preachers, he might, the Antichrist might be a Roman or maybe he could be born in, the, in a little town of Pilate or the emperor at that time period, a little town. The emperor was born. So what do you think about that? Well, certainly, you know, Antichrist, the name given to him by John in his first epistle, uh, we there are actually some 30 different titles that are given for the Antichrist. I've mentioned a few already this morning. He comes in the place of Christ. He comes as a fake Christ. He comes with signs, wonders, and miracles, Paul says in Second Thessalonians 2, in that sense, mimicking the Lord Jesus Christ, how far does he mimic? Um, I don't think you could definitively say that he'd be born in Bethlehem, though I suppose it's possible. 
But what you can definitively say is that he will come out of a 10-nation um, consortium. Um, think Some think this is, you know, the European Union. I, I don't know. I'm not sure the European Union will be in existence then. It's kind of falling apart. But we do know that it's 10 nations out of the former Roman Empire. And then there'll be an 11th nation that will kind of raise its head. And from this nation will come the Antichrist himself. So he comes out of Western Europe. And whether he was born in Bethlehem and moved to Western Europe, I suppose it's possible. But I I tend to doubt that. I don't think he mimics Christ in every single way. Because what he's going to do is he's going to attack the Lord Jesus. And like Satan, he's going to attack the Scripture. Uh, Did God really say? And so Satan has always through various people that he's raised up throughout the course of human history, raised up people who question the authority of Scripture, whether it was a direct revelation, which, of course, when he initially said that to Adam, there was no written Scripture, or whether Satan questions what's written today. And so we have all these people today who are saying, well, the Bible is inspired in spots and it's not fully the Word of God. Well, if it's inspired in spots, then you have to be inspired to spot the spots, and you have to determine what's true and what's not. And so you become a judge of the Bible rather than allowing the Bible to judge you. And I think the Antichrist will do that. I think he will come along and he'll try to, you know, question the Bible. And, you know, you know, people say, well, you teach this secret rapture. I don't think there's going to be anything secret about it when millions of people are missing all of a sudden off of the earth. But I could see him coming up with some other explanation as to why these Christians have been eradicated. Uh, so uh, we do know that he comes in the place of Christ. He, he, he parallels Christ in certain ways and that he claims to be the Messiah. And Jesus warned us of, of this, that there would be false Christ and false prophets, especially during the tribulation. Well, there will be one false prophet, one false Christ who will make his way to the top, and we know him as the Antichrist. So I can speak where Scripture does, where it doesn't, I can't. Anyway, good, good, good question. 843-525-1859. If you have a question on today's Bible line, Gary from Yemassee writes, What are Hasidic Jews? So there are a certain denomination, you might say, within the Orthodox Jews. So there are degrees of Orthodox Jews, and if you look at Judaism as a whole— there are basically three major realms, or you could say three spokes of Judaism. There's conservative Jews, there's Reformed Jews, and there's Orthodox Jews. Now, the term conservative Jews has nothing to do with, you know, a commitment to sound theology, but that's one uh, dimension of Jewish people. <clears throat> and then there's uh, Reformed Jews. They have a slightly different view of what should be practiced, what shouldn't. And then there's Orthodox Jews, and Orthodox Jews are those particular Jewish men and women who are committed, they are observant. Now, um, it's kind of interesting, I was just dialoguing with one of our elders recently about Jewish people and how observant they are, how observant they, they're not, and so even amongst the conservative Jews, amongst the Reform views, uh, Reformed Jews, there are certain practices that they still follow today. Most all of them, for instance, would would follow Hanukkah. Now, Hanukkah is not one of the uh, particular 
um, uh, festivals that God commanded the Jewish people to to follow. But most, um, most about, I think it's like 80% of the Jewish people in the world today will will follow Hanukkah. Um, about 80% of the Jews will light Shabbat con- candles. Um, when Shabbat or Sabbath starts on Friday evening, they will light the candles. Uh, only about 25% of the Jews um, go to synagogue on a regular basis. Uh, maybe only about half the Jews will say, well, we're not going to work on the Sabbath. Um it's interesting, a high percentage of Jews, it's like, again, in the 80% range, uh, participate in a Passover Seder, which is interesting because Passover is really a picture of the Lord Jesus Christ. About 70% of the Jews practice Yom Kippur. So <clears throat> when I say observant Jews, we typically refer to um, the Orthodox as being observant because they're most observant and most consistent across uh, the board, and they're going to um, practice the dietary laws and so things. Now, now within, within the Orthodox, there are various denominations. And when I go to Israel, and by the way, we are going to Israel, God willing, in May of 2022, uh, the registration deadline will be in late February because the Israeli government has kind of a 90-day window where they want to you know, do their own personal background checks on every person who uh, comes along and uh, says they want to come to their country. They want to make sure that you're not a danger uh, to the people of Israel. Um, But with that said, when we go to Israel and we see these Jewish people dressed up, someone will say, well, these guys have fur hats and these guys just have uh, what we typically call in America a yarmulke. And these guys have, you know, a phylactery around their head. And these guys just have the tassels hanging from their belt. And that's simply because there are various denominations within the Orthodox. So you have, um, you know, some who are strictly Orthodox and they practice right down to the letter. And then some that are not. Amongst the Orthodox, the Kassadis, uh, Kassadim or Hasidic Jews, they are the most observant probably. Um, and then there are even degrees within the Hasidic Jews. Um, so uh, it's not an easy term to define because it's somewhat fluid amongst uh, the Hasidic themselves. But for the most part, they're very observant. They practice the dietary laws. They strictly observe the Sabbath. So I was in a Jewish home uh, the last time I was in Israel, and I had brought actually a a flashlight as a gift to my Jewish rab, rabbi friend who invited me to eat in his home. And as we approached his uh, apartment in houses, apartments, they're, they're bought there, and they're incredibly expensive. It'd be a half a million dollars just to live in the apartment that he lives in. Uh, there were no lights, and I said, "Oh, I got a gift for you." And I pulled it out, and I clicked the flashlight while I was still in the wrapper. I said, "Turn it off." Why? Because I, I, uh, I ignited a spark, and you're not supposed to light a fire on the Sabbath. And so, when you get up to his house, all the lights are on, and they're left on the entire Sabbath, so nobody has to pull a light switch. You go to bed with the lights on if you want lights in your room. That's just the way it works. So there are degrees of Hasidic Jews, but most of them are 
very, very carefully practicing. Some come from Western Europe, and so they speak what's called Yiddish, and Yiddish is kind of a blend of uh, Hebrew and German or sometimes other European languages, but it's um, very, very common for them to speak Hebrew and Yiddish as well. So great question. All Uh, right. Yep, go ahead. Very good. Trish from Beaufort would like to know the following. She says, I am studying your series on bibliology. Today, I was listening to Evidence for Inspiration Part 2. This is from July 22nd of 2009. You mentioned a book on prophecy written by John Walberg. You gave the title as the Encyclopedia of Bible Prophecy. I can't find that title, but I did find one by that author called Every Prophecy of the Bible. Is this the same? I'm so glad your sermon series are available for home study. This is about the seventh one I have done. By doing them daily, the continuity is better. Uh, Would be easier with the handouts, though. Thank you for dedication to lead God's flock with his teachings, uh, even that which is not popular. Well, thanks, Trish. Appreciate that encouragement. If you're listening to a sermon in a sermon series, uh, at least when the sermon is being broadcast uh, live, the handout is available. I don't think we make the outlines available otherwise, but they're so simple that you could slow down. But if you're listening to a course, and so Uh, you're listening to a course called Bibliology. There are actually over 500 pages of notes, 500 pages of note-taking outlines for the course on Bibliology. All of those are available for every course that's found in the Institute of Biblical Studies. So I make those notes available. Some people take the courses for credit. They are working towards a certificate, Uh, I just recently issued to a lady, she turned uh, 73, I think, and she had, for the last 15 years, been working through all the courses that were available until I published the final one, and she finished all 36 hours of study, and she actually received the first diploma. She really stuck with it, and I teach it on a master's level. So they are very in-depth. If you went to seminary, apart from maybe uh, some of the languages, though there are courses that are offered in a seminary on a particular realm of theology where someone is working on what we call a master's in biblical studies, which is a two-year theological degree without the, without the languages, no Hebrew or Greek. Uh, there's a master's of divinity some schools offer. That's limited to Hebrew and Greek. And then like where we went to Dell Seminary, They have a master's of theology, which is a four-year theological degree. And so I say it's on a master's level in that uh, these courses are like you're taking a course in a seminary. The only difference is, is you don't have to take the exam, though we do have papers you write and exams, but they're pretty loose. Um, And I show an incredible amount of grace But with that said, on this course on Bibliology, I referenced the fact that Dr. Walford wrote an encyclopedia on Bible prophecy. Um, This book has actually been published a few different times under a few different titles. Uh, You are correct in referring to it as Every Prophecy of the Bible. It's also published as the Prophecy Knowledge Handbook. It's the same book where he goes through every prophecy in the Bible— whether it's in reference to the first coming of Christ 
or the second. And then there are, of course, prophecies that aren't necessarily related to Christ, but they show the prophet who's writing about Christ because Jesus said the scriptures are all about me. So Isaiah writes a prophecy, say, in the 53rd chapter describing the death, burial, and the resurrection of Jesus. But one of the marks of a true prophet is you had to write a short-term prophecy that had to come true, and that authenticated your long-term prophecy. So he, for instance, writes of a king by the name of Cyrus, even before Cyrus is born and named, and what he'll do for the people of Israel. And so Dr. Walford would go through those kinds of prophecies as well. So it's actually a great study tool to have in your library. There are some tools that are, you know, really good ready reference tools in Dr. Walvard was, I think, in my opinion, one of the finest biblical scholars of the 20th century, and uh, really a, a great man of God, and produced a lot of wonderful books that, as I listen to sometimes people preach, I can tell you the page and chapter that they're reading Walvard off of, because we all use him often, and he's a great ready reference. And if uh, this listener is interested in uh, pursuing Further in study in the Institute of Biblical Studies, they can contact Pastor Jeff Lawson at 843-525-0089. Quentin from Beaufort writes, As a new Christian, I'm having trouble with how to spend my recreational time. Being a father to young kids and maintaining a marriage, my free time is limited. I try and use my free time to read and study my Bible. I've spent a lot of my adult life playing video games, watching movies and reading, mostly fantasy books. As a Christian, some things are easy to understand. They have to go. But I'm no longer sure how to spend my recreational time. Sometimes I feel guilty if I watch a movie at night or reading a book because I'm not reading my Bible. I try and read my Bible in the mornings and during my kids' naps and at night, but sometimes want to spend that time doing other things. I guess the question is really, how do I spend my free time? And if I watch a movie with my wife or read a book, am I doing something wrong? And a second question, as a pastor, do you think it is a bad thing to read fantasy genre books? All right, a lot of questions there, Quentin, and I appreciate your heart. As a new believer, you want to please the Lord. Um, I'm not a fan of video games. I'm not saying that all video games are evil and of the devil, but I do think that they are, for the most part, a, a colossal waste of time. And some of them are sinful. They have seductive kind of women in them. They're filled with violence and uh, not a healthy thing for a Christian to be dwelling on. And some people get so glued to them, I guess occasionally you'll read some article online or in the the, the news feed of some person who died playing video games because they were so intense and they couldn't stop, and so it's very addictive. Um, some things are not necessarily sinful, but neither are they profitable, and Paul speaks to this in 1 Corinthians 6. All things are lawful, but I'll not be mastered by anything. So something technically can be okay, but if it's controlling my life, if I'm mastered by it, then it has an unhealthy place. Look, there are things on the internet today that God can use for his glory and for his honor. Uh, You can use your Instagram page, your Facebook page to promote the kingdom of God, to win people to Christ, to find out how folks are doing, to to write them a note of encouragement, uh, to let them know you're praying for them. You can also just be glued to those things where 
you know, when you should be giving your focus maybe to reading the Bible. You didn't even have a quiet time that day. You woke up and you checked your Facebook page, but you didn't think about spending time alone with God. And so any, sometimes even good things, can really have a grip on us, and it can carry us in the wrong direction. Now, there's nothing wrong with being conversant. We, we live kind of between two words, worlds, and as a pastor, I preach between two worlds. I, I preach between the coming world, the coming age, and I have to, though, be conversant in this world. And so you see the Apostle Paul, he actually literally quotes one of the prophets that was popular uh, there in Acts chapter 17. So obviously, he was not totally ignorant of some of the things that were happening in his world so that he could relate to those people and use it as a springboard in which to share the good news. So, you know, I, I, I remember... You know, it was in the 19, I think it was around 1980, maybe it was 79. I had gone to work for an evangelical Christian organization. I was a campus pastor. And as best I know, I think this was the first video game that ever came out, and it was called Pac-Man. And they had these little, you know, square boxes that people would stand behind, sometimes for hours, working this little joystick, trying to gobble up these little blobs and it was it was called Pac-Man. I don't, I don't even know if it exists anymore. I'm sure you could Google it and find it online, but um, I would watch some of these young people, these college students, and they just couldn't get away from it. And I thought, man, this is like controlling. And that was the start. And it kind of grew from there and it's grown into a whole, you know, multi-billion dollar industry. And much of it is very, very evil. And the occult has entered into a lot of these video games and other things. And look, um, as a general rule, if, if your children are playing video games all the time, or if you as a dad are playing video games all the time, you, your priorities are probably out of whack. And again, I'm not going to say definitively all video games are evil, but I think for the most part, it's a huge waste of time. Um, I had sons that served as what they call residential mentors at the universities that they attended and a daughter who did the same. And they said, Dad, this is like such a huge problem for college students. They're just like 24-7 hooked on these video games and some are, you know, failing. Some have flunked out. Uh, it's it's just not healthy. Um, and again, I'm not making a blanket statement that they're all evil. Something may be profitable, but I'll not be mastered by anything. And if you have time for a video game and you don't have time to spend alone with God, then it's a life out of balance. The same could be said, I suppose, of movies. And again, all movies are not of the devil. There are many good movies that are God-honoring that reflect biblical principles. And that happens in a culture where the church is strong, where there's salt, where there's light. But things are beginning to change. And so we saw in the last year, you know, Hallmark that traditionally has been kind of a family-oriented station or movie gatherer uh, come under attack because they weren't gay enough. And so now they're producing gay commercials. And I think they've done a couple of gay romances. And this is very, very sad. Uh, But this is what the culture is doing. And so... If you're a Christian, you have to be very, very selective. 
Uh, you have to be very careful what you put into your mind. And Philippians 4.8 gives us a kind of a test verse, so to speak, of what we should listen to, what we should watch, and what we shouldn't. And if it's filled with evil and sexual immorality and those kinds of things, we shouldn't be filling our mind on it. If it's not praiseworthy, you shouldn't watch it. Now, genre books, you know, fantasy genre books, there are some that have been written by Christians like C.S. Lewis. Some folks love that stuff, and they have been ministered to it. Pilgrim's Progress, it used to be, I don't know if it still is, but it used to be the single most published book in history next to the Bible. I don't know if it can still make that claim. I know it could a decade ago. Um, I read it, I think, for that reason. I quite honestly, I couldn't stand it. <laughs> I'm just not that kind of guy. Now, I, I prefer not to read fiction. But, you know, I have a son who just like, man, he thought it was tremendous C.S. Lewis's books on, you know, that had all this Christian imagery supposedly and, um, so, you know, um, you need to think that through and be careful, but there's a lot of fantasy genre. Like would, would I want to give a child Harry Potter? Certainly not. People say, oh, but they, they, they love to read. Well, you know, you give a book to a teenager that's filled with sexual immorality, they'll read it. They'll gobble it up. And so there was a book in, high school that a lot of high schools in America, uh, when I was in high school in the 1970s, offered. And the high school students all wanted to read it. Why? Because it was filled with section in, in immorality. So just because they want to read doesn't necessarily make it good. Not to mention, if you think about Harry Potter and the author, uh, she's not a believer. And she herself is into witchcraft and other things. And it's cultivating an appetite for those kinds of things that are going to bring your children down the wrong path. Anyway, I hope that helps. 843-525-1859. If you have a question on today's Bible line, Anna from Beaufort uh, writes, Regarding the spiritual gift of discernment, I have a friend who says they have that gift and that it allows them to be able to see or hear demonic happenings. I would like to know your thought on this issue. Well, I offer a course, again, referencing the Institute of Biblical Studies, which if you go to searchthescriptures.org, you can get information on it, or you can call Search the Scriptures and ask about various courses that we offer. And one of those courses is on the subject of, of spiritual gifts. So we go through the 20, some would say 19, I think there's 20, In either case, I wouldn't fight someone over it, but there's approximately 20 spiritual gifts that are listed in the New Testament, and every believer has at least one of these 20 gifts. I don't think they're all in play today. I think miracle healing tongues and interpretation of tongues were unique to the early church, Uh, and so uh, that's not to say that God can't do a miracle or heal. He can do all those things. The question is, Does he do it through individuals? But of the 16 non-sign gifts in the New Testament, I think they're all given today. And what's kind of fascinating with the 16 non-sign gifts is that there's an accompanying responsibility that every Christian has. So you may not have the gift of serving, but he that would be great among you must be the servant of all. You may not have the gift of evangelism. Uh, Some people have that gift, but everyone is called to do the work of an evangelist. In the Great Commission, Christ said, go therefore and make disciples. It's not do discipleship. 
as some have conveniently misinterpreted the text, to hide under the banner of discipleship, and then they don't really share their faith. No, you look at the Great Commission and the five places it's given in the New Testament, and central to it is sharing the gospel. And we are to go and make converts, not just of the house of Israel, as he had dictated earlier, in a limited commission, but now the commission is unlimited. And so for the last 400 years or so, we call it the Great Commission. We're to make disciples converts of all nations. We call them into baptism, and then we teach them the counsel of God. That's kind of the discipleship side of it. Well, uh, out of the 16 gifts, one of them is called discernment or the gift of discernment. And there are four central passages, by the way, in which you will find the list of spiritual gifts. They're easy to remember, two twelves and two fours. There's Ephesians 4 and 1 Peter 4. So those are two critical passages that address this subject, though there are other complementary passages other than these four that either illustrate a particular spiritual gift or mention it. But these are what we would call a central passage where it's a major focus. Then there's Romans 12, and then there's 1 Corinthians 12 through 14. So two fours, two twelves. And so for to one is given the word of wisdom through the Spirit, and to another the word of knowledge according to the same Spirit, and to another faith by the same Spirit and to another gifts of healing by the one Spirit, and to another the effecting of miracles, and to another prophecy, and to another, here it is, 1 Corinthians twelve ten. the distinguishing of spirits. And so this is sometimes called the gift of discernment or discerning spirits. It's able to distinguish between what's right, what's true, what's wrong, what's good, what's evil. It's between the Spirit of God and the spirit of Antichrist, who's been at work since the ascension of the Lord. John notes that. The spirit of Antichrist has always been at work for 2,000 years, and someday the spirit of Antichrist will embody itself in an individual, a real human, who's known as the Antichrist. And so the gift of discernment or discerning spirits can distinguish between God's work and the evil one's work. Now, when we think about discernment, there's what we might call natural discernment or what we might just call common sense or horse sense, sometimes we say in the South. And a believer and an unbeliever alike can make wise decisions just based on what we might call common sense. But then there's spiritual discernment. And as I said, with every non-signed gift, there is an accompanying responsibility. And so while someone may have the gift of discernment, we are taught in Scripture that every believer, it's actually a mark of maturity, is to be a discerning person. And so a good example would be found in the book of Hebrews. He is dealing with people who had been saved long enough where they should have grown and have been able to participate in more challenging truth. Concerning him, I'm reading from Hebrews 5 and verse 11. Concerning him, this fellow Melchizedek, we have much to say, and it's hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing. If you don't even know who Melchizedek is, you may be a baby Christian. Uh, In either case, for though by this time you ought to be teachers, you have need again for someone to teach you the elementary principles, and you have come to need milk and not solid food. And, of course, the word you for this time, you, 
to put it in Southern English, we'd say you all, humes, it's a plural, meaning you, the congregation to whom I am writing of Jewish Christians, you should have grown enough where you could be a teacher. Now, the scripture says, let not many of you become teachers. That's dealing with the office. So I am been called to the office of pastor or teacher. Before someone jumps into that office quickly, they better think twice because they will incur a stricter judgment. Uh, you need to make sure God has actually called an individual to this particular. So there's the office. There's the gift of teaching. That's one of the 20 gifts listed in the New Testament. God gives some to be teachers. You can't determine what gift you get. That's determined by God, the Holy Spirit. He balances out the body of Christ and gives the gifts because each gift is needed for the proper functioning of the body. And so God puts the body of Christ together accordingly. Just because someone has a more upfront gift doesn't make them a better person or a greater Christian than the person who has the gift of serving and works the sound so that person can speak. Each gift is needed. But then there's the responsibility to teach, and that's really what he's focusing on here. By this time, you ought to be teachers, but you need, again, someone to teach you uh, the elementary principles of the oracles of God. You've come to need milk and not solid food. Now, the word milk is used in two senses in the Bible, sometimes of just simple truth. And so when a baby's born, you don't feed them steak, you feed them milk. That's where they need to begin. I, I spoke with a lady who actually just came to Christ last Saturday over the phone with me. And she had been brought to church by a couple and brought to a Sunday school class. I have no idea which one it was. But she said, they were talking about this, you know, agape love and some other kind of love. I said, Phil, yeah, that's it. She said, "I, I didn't even know what they were talking. I had no idea. I said, well, they probably shouldn't have brought you that class, I said, because A, you just became a Christian with me 10 minutes ago, but B, as a new Christian, you need to go to the new Christian's class to get grounded in the basics. And so we deal with a lot of milk truths there in that class. And that's what you give. But the word milk is also used to describe not necessarily a simple truth, but the purity of truth. So like newborn babes long for the pure milk of the word. There he's not describing milk in reference to simple truths, but to the purity of truth. Then he says, for everyone who partakes only of milk is not accustomed to the word of righteousness, for he's an infant, he's a babe. But solid food, he says, is for the mature who because of practice have their senses trained. And interestingly, the word trained, gymnazo, is the verb. We get our word gymnasium from it. They've taken truth and they've applied truth. They've exercised the truth they know, and so they grow. When you obey what you know, you grow, and with growth comes discernment between good and evil. So there is that aspect of discernment that every believer should have, and it's by learning and obeying the Word of God. And that's why the church today is so non-discerning, because A, the shepherds who are supposed to be feeding the flock are not opening the Bible on Sunday morning and teaching the Word of God expositionally. That's what we're called to do. That's hard work. Look, it'd be really easy for me to get up there and just uh, do a wing-it kind of sermon and a lot of cute little stories, and I could cut my preparation uh, time into about one-tenth. But that's not what God calls us to do. But there's this gift of discernment beyond, you know, natural discernment or spiritual discernment that's mandated for every Christian. There's the gift of discernment, 
that God gives to certain people in the church, and they're kind of a watchman in the church. These are the people who are quick to point out spiritual error. Um, Unfortunately, like any gift, if it's functioning not in the power of the Holy Spirit, if you're out of fellowship with God, because it's possible to operate any spiritual gift, you can have the gift of serving, serving and come and be out of fellowship with the Lord and serve in the flesh and just be a crank, and no one wants to work with you. Um, And if you're out of fellowship with the Lord and you're trying to exercise discernment, you you might unjustly criticize a person. Um, But this gift is really critical today because as we move into the end of the age, especially the latter days, as 2 Corinthians 4 teaches, there will be a growing number of false teachers and false prophets, and we need to be careful. But I don't think for one second that the gift of discernment is some mystical, extra-biblical revelation, some voice from God. Now, if your friend listens to this answer, they'll probably be mad at me because I am um, pulling the rug out from underneath their feet, and I'm destroying their so-called spiritual credibility. Uh, Yeah, you know, God spoke to me, and he gave me this revelation, and you know, where these people get these special messages from God, that they're probably listening to Beth Moore too much. Uh, these people who get these direct text messages and emails from God. But what the gift of discernment does do is it takes the Word of God to test the spirits, to see if they really line up with God or whether or not they're in opposition to God. And you can only do that if you can rightly divide the Word of Truth, where you're immersed in the Scripture, where you know the Scripture so well, you can spot a fraud and where there is error. Anyway, so I hope that helps. It's a great question, and I think we're about out of time, but let me just say that uh, Israel is coming, God willing, in May of 2022. We have room for about 16 or so people. If you have an interest in going to Israel with me, uh, you can go to searchthescriptures.org, and you can see the whole itinerary and prices and where we're going. If you have specific questions, you can call us here at Uh, Search the Scriptures or at Community Bible Church, and one of our staff will answer any questions you might have. (coughs) Thank you for joining us today. Have a good day as you walk with Christ. 